0: I want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of Minority Report Podcast with Eric and Corral. Each episode, we talk with leaders in business, tech, and media. But first, today's episode is sponsored by Beeler Tech. With a focus on building meaningful relationships for individuals and companies, Beeler Tech facilitates powerful connections and conversations, empowers with hands-on coaching and consulting, and amplifies with targeted exposure and messaging. In the digital advertising and media world, Tech is your connection to what's possible. So today, joining us is Lashonda Goffin, who's the CEO of Colossus SSP. Let's jump in and get to know Lashonda. Welcome, how are you?
1: I'm doing wonderful, how are you?
0: Oh, thrilled you're here, thrilled you're here. So much to learn and so much to talk about. For those that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about Colossus SSP and what you're doing over there these days?
2: So Colossus
1: SSP is a minority-owned advertiser technology company. We are focused on an inclusive marketplace, creating an inclusive, not exclusive marketplace. One thing that we have found is it's hard to reach niche audiences at scale. And that could be because of their Lack of resources or know how when it comes to the programmatic space. Mm -hmm. So, we are really adamant about making sure that everyone is equipped, everyone has a voice and the know how and the understanding of what it means to enter into the space, get access to the budgets, and really amplify the buying power behind those audiences, whether they be small, the mom and pop bloggers, or a massive publishing entity. So, Mm -hmm. that's our goal.
0: Very cool. I can't wait to talk about your great career path and all the great companies you've worked for before that led up to this point. But first, tell us a little bit about you. Tell us about where you were born and raised and tell us about the early days. So,
1: you know, I'm from Brooklyn, <laughs> New York, born and raised, in, you know, where the, the, the concrete jungle is what they call it. <laughs> it definitely gave me an edge to survive this industry. <laughs> but I currently reside in Georgia. I traded in my Timbaland boots. Or I guess you can, some drivers, I guess we can call it that. So (laughs)
3: I'm
1: a peach now. (laughs) I live in Georgia now. I'm coming up on my two-year anniversary of being a resident here.
3: Oh, wow. Wow. Goes fast, huh?
1: It does. It really does. I miss the energy of New York, but I definitely love the space that Georgia offers.
3: Especially over the last two years, right?
1: Oh, this time and space has definitely accelerated my Transition yeah. <laughs> to, to becoming a Southerner, it made me appreciate it that much more. You know, we were definitely quarantining up in New York during the time that the lockdown happened. And it just so happened that we put the offer in on a the house. They accepted it, but wanted to close very early mm. before our lease was out. My landlord was nice enough to let us out of our lease, which mm. meant we had to move in with my parents. So that was a lot a whole family, mm. you know, my husband, my kids, my mom, my dad. And my, there ain't enough space for us to survive this and love each other when it's all said and done so it worked itself out school became virtual and we said well we don't have to stay that's the reason why we were staying to let the kids finish the school year and we we drove down and haven't looked back
0: that's fascinating and it's interesting because there's so many households too now that you have blended generations and it's interesting some of the stuff you talked about uh, Carl and i talk about a lot sort of these sort of moments sort of be thankful for and look at the positive side of things and what it's like over the past two years, right? You mentioned your parents. I want to ask you about your family and growing up. Tell us about what it was like growing up and the influence of, of your parents. And, and it's your so life.
1: funny. I don't know how my parents met. I would have never put them together. My mother's like the Southern belle from rural South Carolina. My father's <laughs> the New York OG cat, you know, he sits at the water hole <laughs> with his boys. But they found their way together and then growing up in an apartment building, there wasn't always a two-parent household. And because of that, our friends would call us the Huxtables mm. <laughs> all the time. So we were like the good kids. I tell my kids all the time, I don't really have good stories for you. I, I listened. I didn't get on punishment much. I went to church on my own. I was all the choir. You know, I had a pretty, you know, I stayed out of, out of the, the limelight kind of thing. But my mom and dad, you know, they were the... The true middle-class workers got the job with the city, so they could retire with their pension at the age that they were ready to.
0: Oh, that's great. Good for you guys. You've worked for some tremendous companies, LaShonda. You've worked at Tribune, Trustex, and a little bit further back. Great experience at Havas and, you know, AFI Perf, and, and now at Colossus. Tell us about how you got started. How did you get started down that path? into advertising, publishing and media and then ultimately ad tech.
1: I endeavored to be Beyonce. So let's just get that out there.
0: I was not (laughs) supposed
1: to be in in advertising and marketing. I was supposed to be the next icon living. Ah. But it's okay. We're here now. And I have a mentor who was an account executive at WABC. She was very close with who my then boss became to be, Nicole Torres, at Havas, working in the local broadcast group. And she came to me and she said, listen, right now you're just doing a job to you know make money, but this would be a chance to start a career. I know nothing about local broadcast, mm. but I trusted her and I knew she had my best interest. So I said, you know what, let me just go ahead with it. And I never looked back. I'm glad I did it. I was on the local broadcast side for about eight years. And it was a testament to how your work family really does become family. And that's why I stayed so long. We have folks there that were celebrating 30 and 40 year anniversaries, which was a gift and a curse for the younger generation, because that meant I didn't really have much room to grow until someone retired. And I had an amazing boss who saw that and knew my career had plateaued. And was very supportive in finding something that would allow me to go on a trajectory of better success. And so looking internally, I didn't want to stay in local broadcast. I really wanted to make that pivot over to digital, but wanted to do it within the brand house of, of Havaz, given they knew my work experience and would take the chance on me applying the skills to learn a new set. And so I moved over to the trading desk. And...
0: Wow, what a different world, want... huh? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Is it? Yeah. I read the uh, IAB glossary term, printed out all forty pages. Yeah. I only knew MSA and DMA, and I said, "What
0: <laughs> in the world?" Okay. <laughs> time to get to work here. It's oh time to study.
1: <laughs> it was a lot. It was overwhelming. Programmatic was fairly new, especially to that agency, and because of the revolving door, training wasn't really settled. You know, you just kind of really got thrown into the fire, which I found to be the best way to do it. So I stayed on the trading desk team for about two and a half years, and was met with an opportunity from Tribune through my rep. She left; she was going on to a new opportunity. I met her boss, and he said, "Well, you know, would you want to take a chance and come over to sales?" And all this time, you know, I'm I'm buy side ten and ten years at this time. I said, "Oh no, sales is the dark side. I wanted nothing <laughs> to do with it." <laughs> yeah. But I knew I had to take a chance, try something different. And it was really an opportunity for me to create something that wasn't there. So going over to the Tribune family, I was that in-bed, in-house, programmatic kind of expert working alongside of the traditional AEs, getting them to understand that you're not losing revenue, you're not losing clients. You just have to follow where they want to put the money and helping them to really make sure that they could retain it. So getting them to understand, okay, it's not a direct IO. It's still going through the ad service, just going through it programmatically. So that's where I kind of lent my hand. And then we started to really build out the offering with our own exchange, not just being remnant as that term has since, you know, gone away, but selling it purposefully and packaging. And then we eventually got into, you know, programmatic guarantees or really productizing what we could do programmatically over there. And after spending my time, what you for two and a half years, I realized that the buy side is the dark side. So um,
2: <laughs> I would
1: never go back <laughs> to being a buyer, but I'm grateful for the foundation that I have, especially with local broadcasts as CTV is becoming a thing. And they're really mm-hmm. figuring out how to digitize local as fragmented as, you know, our options are what they're doing with that. The most innovation they have is trying to Turn a, a grip into a CPM, um, you know, so we could buy Pandora and Media Ocean. But it's great to kind of have that and then understanding. So now when I'm talking to buyers, even to publishers, I was hands on keyboard. I understand what that means to plan, mm-hmm. to optimize, what limitations there might be. You know, clients want. They want things that they just realize don't exist in this space, but you find a way to make it work, and then pat yourself on the back later, or drink a lot, and yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> so I had a mixture of the two.
0: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Special skill sets
1: <laughs> for sure. And then moving over into ad tech, and it's like the trajectory wasn't set. I didn't set that course. I was going to do now, was going to do now, you know, with those opportunities that present themselves, so you just go, you know what? Why not? And so. I met David Cole and John Blade, who were then the CEO and CRO of Trustex. And what really piqued my interest there was it was mission-based. I never knew that an asset company could be a not-for-profit. And so it changed my way of thinking and what I would do next in my career. So it was something purposeful, you know, with the mission to clean up the the ecosystem. So, you know, I I ran along with that opportunity and and forever grateful for it because it was really nice to sit in the middle of the buyers and the publishers and really see exactly what could be done there, how you can actually work to grow both sides. When it comes to my movement to Colossus, I actually met my now boss at a conference. I had spoken up at a town hall. I had said something and he came up to me. and was like, you sound like you know what you're talking about. (laughs) <laughs> you know,
3: keep um,
1: yeah. <laughs> and at that time I was you know loyal you know I was with Tribune and I, no I love it here you know I'm still figuring out my, the sales type I'm still on the publishing side but he presented me with the opportunity that I just couldn't refuse and it was really this is what we've got going on here I was sold immediately just because that too was mission-based you know minority owned we understand that there's a void there's a void that they were literally trying to fill not just make money. And it was empowering the, the publishers who didn't know how to, maybe who did not have ad app services, who just didn't know anything beyond Google AdSense for digital you know monetization for their sites. And I thought that that was really interesting to do in this space. And he said, well, listen, just just come in and run the whole thing. Oh, me? <laughs> no pressure. I'll try and at Trustex, I was in a very sales-driven role, demand generation, and I really wanted to get into the, that piece of connecting all the dots. And so, when that that position presented itself, I said, "You know what? You only live once. You know, let's let's do it." And I haven't looked back again. It's just, it's just. But I told me, you know, I'm, I'm riding this thing to the wheels fall off. So we've right. got a lot of work to do.
3: There you go. Well, congratulations on the success that you've had up until this point throughout your career. And I'm curious to know what is life like as the chief executive officer at
1: Colossus? It's a role that I have grown into as the team grows and you can relinquish certain responsibilities. You learn how Mm to then build up the folks that you're working with. And I always have to correct them. Like You don't work for me, we work together because I'm still, I'm doing this thing with you guys. And so it's offering that support, offering that insight, making sure the interwoven cross-departmental functions makes sense. It's empowering the folks that I work with to do what they're good at. It's been amazing. Everyone on the team is very passionate about what they've done. We have a team that is comprised of folks that have touched all aspects of the programmatic and digital ecosystem. So, it's been a learning experience, learning day by day, challenging the marketplace to see things from a different way, really making sure folks understand that you have to buy with intention. And when you say the word fair and making things equitable, understanding that not just giving someone a chance one time, but also giving them a chance to make something right if it goes wrong, not holding us to a different standard. I'm, I'm learning how to really Challenge, challenge our partners to see think that way. So that way, you know, we have a long term, fruitful and a meaningful partnership.
3: Gotcha. And is the conversations around targeting and finding multicultural audiences and inventory, is that a an easier conversation today as opposed to, say, 20 months ago? How has that conversation changed with everything that's gone on in the last 20 months?
1: It's definitely I won't say an easier conversation because I have to be mindful of, when someone asks me the question, I'm going to tell them the truth. And sometimes it might not be the politically correct thing to do. But with the awakening of social unrest movement that happened, we began to receive a lot more inbound. On how can we partner? What do I need to do? I have this DEI initiative. I would love to align myself with what you're doing. Because the beauty of it is that Colossus was here before that happened. It was a void that we saw. So, when I say easier, yes, because now they're willing and they see that there was a void. They see that what they were doing was not purposely excluding, but they were not intentionally including. So, now that they know that and they're aware it's making them put their money where their mouth is. So I guess the easiest part is that we have their ear now.
0: We're going to take a short break and hear from our special sponsor. We're hanging out with Rob Bieler, founder of Tech. Rob, how are you? Welcome. I'm good. I'm good. Awesome. Listen, Tech is growing. Rob, tell us what is the core concept behind Buehler.tech?
2: Yeah, it's clear to us that community is greater than complexity. And we believe that if we work together, we can make digital media and digital advertising a better business to be in. We think about that at the individual level, the department level, and even at the publisher level and anyone that wants to support that concept.
0: I love it. That's so cool. And I love the word that you said, community. Can you talk about the ways that you help the community?
2: Yeah. I mean, we try to connect people with other people and create conversations. And Sometimes those conversations are events, roundtables, slack conversations, right? The key is to move things forward. And one thing I wanted to share with your audience is we like to create speaking opportunities. And mm-hmm. we think that speaking in front of an audience is a key skill set people need to advance their careers, which is why we love the minority report, because you highlight new voices. And we really support that concept.
0: Thanks a lot, Rob. And thanks for always being such a great supporter of the podcast over the years. Your support means a lot. So everyone, please be sure to check out www.beeler.tech. And now back to the podcast. Just overall, in terms
3: of, let's talk about programmatic in our space, right? And with the sort of lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion, what do you think? You know, I think as an industry, we are taking some steps in the right direction. Quite frankly, probably not moving as fast as I personally would like us to move in the space. But what are some thoughts that you have around how we can improve and be a more inclusive industry?
1: We, we have to do it on purpose, right? We have to remove the doubt. There's always a number of places on it. We're going to spend 2% of our budget on minority-owned publishers. But then there's doubt, can we even do it? Does that much inventory actually exist? You come to a partner, and it's that check and balance a little bit of how much can I trust them to give me what I'm asking for, versus I still have to have this much control over what I'm willing to bid on. We find that, you know, we have to work with partners to ease up sometimes on the uh, brand safety because certain publications may have message boards or, you know, the comment sections, which only means that we're engaging. But it's flagged as OGC. And so when it comes to scaling, it's there. It's just what are you willing to spend your money on? And it's not just about looking at the primary KPI of viewability. It's focusing on, you have to drill down. There has to be a secondary, a tertiary, because It depends on who you're trying to. Let's look at the bottom. Did you make sales? Did someone buy? Okay, that's great. It was 38% viewable. They still find a reason to be upset when the goal was hit. And so it's finding those things. Everything was great, but completion was only 70%. But the overall goal (laughs) was to sell sell. the soap. We sold the soap. You you know, it's those things. It's finding that balance of also giving us the room to make an error. I find that, when you're forced to do something, it's like, okay. I have to. I have to include this partner. God forbid we fail. Mm-hmm. See now I don't want to do it. This is why I didn't do it before.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If another partner messed up, do they get a chance to to make it good? Do you optimize it as opposed to just cutting it off? It's those conversations that I find we're being graded a little harder. You know, sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when it's forced and it's not something that it was a choice made on the person that's doing the that execution, but you know. We work through those things and it's all about like the relationship building and letting them know that that we're here for the common cause. I'm not trying to get rich off of this. It's not just about the bottom line because it's about a long term play. With the mission, if you are not servicing your client, because the last thing you want to do is jeopardize the integrity of the bottom line for anyone. So that's first and foremost, which is what we ask for the chance, give us the opportunity. And then sometimes I'm even open to, okay, you don't have to dedicate 35% to Latinx-owned publishers. Let the KPIs dictate where you spend your money. It's just about now you're doing it and you're intentionally including everyone and the success of the campaign is dictating where you're going to spend more.
3: Gotcha, gotcha. LaShonda, what excites you about the future of programmatic?
1: Oh, I'm just waiting for the next hot topic. You know, when <laughs> I came on, it was viewability. Now it's cooking apocalypse. You know, so I'm just kind of sitting back, waiting to see. Okay, what are we gonna stir ourselves up with next? Sleepless with nights. With next, you know, that's the funny thing. How do we solve for these things that's unknown? Someone's gonna make it up. The buzzword's gonna come, and then we'll all go into a frenzy. So I know it. It, it doesn't give much meat but
0: you got to find some joy in in the space that you work in. So that's what I'm just waiting for. I want to ask you, Shonda, about some personal experiences. You know, can you tell us what it's like being a female and then also being a Black female in many corporate environments where a lot of folks don't look like you? There's a disconnect there at times. Can you talk to us about that experience and what you've learned from that over the years?
1: I think first and foremost, what happens is, as in Black women or people of color, the minority in the room, we put so much pressure on ourselves to make sure that we do right, Mm -hmm. because we're representing everybody else that looks like us. Um, You know, the impression comes first. And then I said, you know what? I don't give a damn. And I don't give a damn because I went to a meeting and moving over to sales. You know, coming from the agency world, you know, you can roll out of bed and head on to the office. But when I took the the job going into sales, oh god, I have to get adult clothes. I have to, you know, look the part. I went into a meeting. I had on a suit, and this person was second from the CEO at a major agency, and he had on a trucker cap and a flannel. And he had tattoos that one was freshly healing from his knuckles up to his wrist. And I said, why am I putting so much pressure on myself to look Mm -hmm. the part? It's not my problem if you are distracted by my appearance and can't hear what I'm saying, because my Jordans does not mean I don't know what I'm talking about. And so I've kind of taken that sense, but I've eased up on myself
2: Mm -hmm.
1: to not put so much pressure to make sure that I look like the part so that I'm accepted. It took a long time. I will be honest, you know, the first 10 years of my um experience, I'm often the only person of color on my team. So you get used to that. But after I move over to sales and, and really started to travel more and meet with clients, like you really just you grow into yourself and you just go, you take me for who I am. Again, if you can't see past. The outer, even though I know we're judged from the moment we walk in the door, that says more about you than me. So it was just a personal thing I had to do. And
3: by the way, being from Brooklyn, I thought you were going to say your Tim's, not your Jordans.
1: But. <laughs> but you know, right. you know, <laughs> I might walk in the next minute with a poochie sweater on. That's like, right. just Because I'm, you know, my hoops, I make sure I wear them even with my tattoos. I don't cover them up all the time. Sometimes I wear ponytails, sometimes, you know. Sometimes I wear a doobie. I just said, this is me. For one, my name is Lashonda. okay? And prior to getting married, my maiden name is Jackson. You knew I was a Black girl and you knew I was from around the way. <laughs> so who am I trying to fool? You knew who I was from the minute I emailed you and wanted your attention, so.
3: That's the beauty of like sort of all of us feeling more comfortable in our own skin as we move along our professional journey, right? Mm-hmm. Of being just more of who you are and being yeah. more comfortable with who you are. It eases the mental stress, right? And you then actually perform better at your job. Exactly. Right? So yep. you know, you're we not hear thinking it.
1: about right button up.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right, right. Absolutely. And, and you know, Sean, I want to thank you for passing that on because there's so many folks that feel that way, right? But they don't hear those words that you just shared. And thank you for taking a moment to share your experiences so that others can learn and then also maybe apply and then push those feelings down in a way of faster than, than we did or than you did, right? You know? And, and, ease up on so,
1: ourselves. Just go easy right. on ourselves.
0: That's right. So you did a lot of that work to get to that point. But I imagine there were some others that kind of inspired and helped that way of thinking and that ability, really. Who are some of those folks from the family side? Who are some of those folks even from your professional side?
1: I consider her family my mentor. She's also my sorority sister. I always looked up to her. I, I would see her in church and I'm like, oh my gosh, she's so fly. What <laughs> is it? You know, but she held my hand. Through, okay, your resume, post-grad, even helping with college applications and my essays. The consistency in my life. With those that I consider mentors, and, and particularly that one, is really kind of what helped what I had to pattern myself after professionally. Now, there, there were some things, you know, I was a little rough around the edges. We would go do lunch dates, and she's like, No, it's called butterfly, LaShonda. You want them to butterfly your steak. Like, let's not embarrass ourselves. <laughs> yeah. But it's those kind of just the way she carried herself. And also, Often, okay, we are the minority, being the one of the only women of color on her team, right? Seeing how she dealt with that pressure, seeing how regardless, she always showed up. It did not matter. There was never a time we vent. We may, you know, vent to each other, but there was never a moment to give up to let anything get the best of you professionally. And that was something that I always held on to. So she so kind of crossed the line professionally and personally, even with my old boss, and I would say both of them from Harvaz and then from Tribune with Harvaz, my manager had a child that was my age. So there was a liking that she took to me because she saw me as one of her own. So, you know, when someone looks at you, it's not just I'm not just her employee. It's like, no, I want what's best. I want what's best for you. So knowing that you had that in the workspace, someone that was pushing you to say, OK, no, you just did it, but you can do it better. That worked. And then moving over to Tribune, my, my manager, Ashley McGee, she's one of the folks that actually helped me to stand firm and ask for what I want. Because mm-hmm. I saw her do it. He's like, oh, the offer letter said this, but my worth is this. So take it or leave it. And I, Ooh, I like that. And just by watching the scene, it was never a direct conversation. This is what you're supposed to do. It, it was really just kind of observing how she carried herself, how she moved up the ranks. A tribune and just kind of the course she set for herself she knew what she wanted to do she knew who she needed to talk to she knew how to carry herself in certain you know instances, but never compromised who she was for the sake of you know for, for advancement and that's what i i really held on to
3: shout out to ashley as well too we are 120 plus episodes deep and she was episode number two of this podcast so.
1: Ashley Ashley is, she's an amazing human. And now that, you know, she's not my boss, she's become a dear friend. And just, I look at her as a family member, just honestly, it's rare, you know, we're in the industry amongst many, and it's rare when you come across someone who truly is looking out for your best interest. You usually have to do it yourself. And when you don't know what you're being shielded from from the top down or what they're doing from you from their level up to make sure that you're seen, to make sure that this person is deserving. It's, you, you, you don't find it very often. So shout out to Ashley for that shout to
3: Definition, shout Definition to of a true leader. That's oh, who yeah. she is. True leader, true leader. Lashonda, where do you draw inspiration from?
1: Oddly, um, don't judge me, okay? <laughs> 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 My inspiration really comes from Straight to DVD movies. Now, I'm going to tell you why. (laughs) We are are in a space where people now have the ability to make their dreams come true. As someone who pursued music and understanding that you're setting yourself out on a course where your success has nothing to do with your talent. It's all at the behest of, okay, is it going to be the right timing? Do I have the right look? Not can I sing? When I look at these movies, I said, these people took it into their own heart. They wanted to do it. They did it. They put it out and they're telling their stories from their heart. So I'm a person who is really into the arts. So I draw from those movies. I draw from the independent artists. I'm always on SoundCloud listening to independent artists. So I draw from those experiences from them people, the, the individuals who are fulfilling their dreams by any means necessary. And I'm not sure I'd be interested to see what, you know, out of the 120, what the consensus was. I'm sure some folks, you know, they're reading the Bible or, you know, they have, you know, or stop selling what to do. I look at the dreamers. That is what does it for me. That's
3: great. And the beauty of that question is everyone's answer is different. Everyone's answer is a, a bit unique where they can find that, that inspiration from. So thank you for sharing that. All right. Fun question that I love to ask every guest that we have on the podcast, which is to Give us the top three apps that you use on your phone, but you can't name email, calendar, or text
0: messaging. I think I heard one of them. Um,
1: so my <laughs> top app, I think the first one is Mint.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> all right.
1: Because I check every day with all my coins, right? Let me see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I care. <laughs> Trying to set up generational wealth for my there you children. Go. Give there them that head start. Second one, Instagram.
3: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You're right, who, who, who are you following on Instagram? What are some of your favorite accounts?
1: Well, I will say I only follow people that I have connected with in real life. There's only okay. a handful of people that I don't know. So like Brandy, she's my favorite singer. Faith Evans is my favorite singer. Lil Mo is one of my favorite singers. So those yeah. folks I follow. And then like the affinity pages so I can get all my good gossip from, you know, all the housewives, all the love, but, you know, so like the famous, <laughs> that age. So, but I keep it to real life interactions because you find right. yourself and you start following the the influencers or the Instagram models. You you don't realize, but you start to look at yourself differently when you consume mm. so much of what's not real. So
3: right, gotcha. Um, okay,
1: one more. Again, don't judge me, but it's one of my slot apps. So. <laughs> What is the name of it? It is called House of Fun. House of Fun. House of Fun. It's House a slot machine, a slot machine app. Ah.
3: Okay. And me
1: and my mother every day. I'm like, Mom, you didn't send me my spins, or you didn't send me my <laughs> cash. Or, <"I> <laughs> and it got to the one with my my daughter, and she's she's like, Did my send you your spins today? I'm like. Let me go.
3: <laughs> if you and your mom are doing that over the phones, I would love to see the two of y'all in a real casino. Yeah.
1: <laughs> she has all the luck in the world. The machines talk to her. Now, she's not like a heavy gambler where she's sitting down at a table. But those slides, those penny slides. Oh, she knows the science behind
2: it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's great. I thought SoundCloud might be in there, but I guess it's not. huh? I'm a SoundCloud guy.
1: Are you a music person
0: or is it more just Audibles? You know, I, I'm I'm a music person in there, and then I like hearing kind of what you describe. Sometimes someone else's take on stuff, so I float around in there a little bit, you know. But then sometimes you come across something you're like, ooh, ooh no, no, right? But, or, no. That's some of the fun, though, right? You're like, oh, nope, nope, yes, right? right? They, can't they can't all Absolutely. be yeses. They can't all be yeses.
1: I'm trying so hard to, just, you know, I'll give it a chance. Yeah. And like, okay, <laughs> this this looks like it was shot on a razor, and I yeah. can't <laughs> hear. I can't see.
0: That's, oh, I wanted to see you. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, Shonda, we learned a lot. We learned a lot, and thank you for sharing so much with us. And I think you really helped us also sort of open up our eyes and learning about how you're helping others to sort of think about through your platform on how marketers should really sort of re-envision and, and create a new concept of what success looks like, new success metrics, get beyond viewability, get beyond the traditional sort of measurements of success, especially when it comes to trying to reach and utilize great publishers, find amazing audiences, and then measure the success of of these campaigns in ways that maybe they shouldn't. So that was really insightful. And I think marketers, if you're listening, think real hard about that. I think also you shared some interesting moments that are just real, you know, in life where, you know, you have serendipitous moments where you can advance your career by, by some of the folks that you meet. Right. And some of that is sort of chance. Right. So that's really helpful too. So thank you so much for being a, a great guest and, we also want to thank our sponsor, Beeler Tech. Beeler Tech is focused on building meaningful relationships for individuals and companies. We facilitate powerful connections and conversations, empowering hands-on coaching and consulting and amplifying with targeted exposure and messaging. In the digital advertising and media world, Beeler Tech is your connection to what's possible. Thanks everyone for listening again. Thanks to our sponsor. And you can find more great episodes where you find all of your audio and video. Just search... Minority Report podcast and look for the logo.